Welcome to Burning Platforms, a podcast about the politics of technology. I'm Peter Lewis. I'll be joined by regular panellist Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea and Health Engine CEO Dan Stinton, along with special guest, academic and author Toby Walsh. We'll be talking about the fakery behind AI, the US President's new executive order, and why it's not okay that our books have been stolen to train these large language models. I hope you enjoy the discussion. All right, well, welcome everybody. It's been a very big month in global AI regulation. Um, and I think this week we're going to dive into a bit of this with our very special guest, Toby Walsh, Professor of Artificial Intelligence at the Uni of New South Wales and author of the new book, Faking It. G'day, Toby. Thanks for joining us. Um, Lizzie and Dan are here in the virtual room, overwhelmed with um, declarations, the Westminster Declaration, the G7 Hiroshima Statement. There's the Benchley Declaration that's just been issued. And of course, Joe Biden's AI Executive Order. Um, but because we are who we are, we're not going to talk about that first. We're going to talk about the things that have taken our fancy over the last couple of weeks, because I think in a way, all those big declarations are actually about dealing with some of the crazy things that are happening in real life. Um, starting with Dan Meta's latest lawsuit in the States. Do you want to talk us through that? Yeah. So a bit of background. Um, so last week, Colorado and California led a, a joint lawsuit uh, filed by 33 states um, saying that Facebook violated consumer protection laws uh, by unfairly ensnaring children and deceiving users about the safety of its platforms. And then that was followed by the District of Columbia and eight other states that, that filed separate lawsuits against Meta with, with most of the same claims. Um, in their complaint, uh, the state said, and I'm quoting here, they said that Meta designed psychologically manipulative product features to induce young users' compulsive and extended use of platforms like Instagram, um, the Attorney General also charged Meta with violating a Federal Children's Online Privacy Act. Um, so, so I guess, look, the legal case itself falls into two buckets. Um, the first is whether Meta deliberately targeted young people and then deliberately tried to addict them to its products, which is kind of their business model, so that certainly doesn't sound surprising. Um, and the second is whether Meta contravened the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, or COPPA, which requires parental consent for users that are under 13. Meta does, I think, virtually nothing, if not nothing, to um, obtain parental consent. I mean, that said, I don't think any internet company does, really. It's particularly hard to do that when you, you're not requiring um, users to verify their identity. So it's, it's there's a bit of a trade-off there. This all follows a two-year investigation by um, the Attorneys General that began with the Frances Haugen revelations that I think we spoke about about two years ago. And effectively, she blew the whistle on, on Facebook's addictive practices there were many concerning stories about that at the time, but but I, I guess essentially you could you could summarise it as Facebook getting more and more evidence that its products were harming young people, particularly young girls. Many people within the company were recommending changes to the product and the algorithm to better protect them. And time and time again, senior Facebook executives chose to ignore those recommendations in order to protect consumer engagement and, and not pick impact on their, their advertising machine. Um, in response, Facebook issued a statement which essentially blamed the government for not creating clear age-appropriate standards for the industry. Um, they kind of have a point in a way, but they also, uh, as usual, shunned any responsibility for them, um, you know, for, the, for their own products. So, look, there are yeah. a couple of interesting points about this, um, and then I'll, I'll hand over to others. On the legal side, I reckon this is interesting because it's unusual for so many states to come together to sue a tech giant for, for consumer harms. Um, and the coordination um, shows something similar to what we saw with the states fighting um, big tobacco uh, 30 or so years ago, or probably a bit longer than that now. 
and Phil Weiser, the Colorado's Attorney General, even said in a statement that just like big tobacco and vaping companies have done in the past, Meta chooses to maximise its profits at the expense of public health. So drawing a direct parallel there. And the other point is that this, uh, again, falls back to a problem that we've spoken about a lot, which is Facebook's algorithm prioritising engagement above its civic responsibilities. This is a particular problem in the US, by the way, because in attempting to regulate algorithms, you run the risk of running foul of free speech protections that are protected by the First Amendment. So it's really hard for the US to do this. And instead, in order to deal with these problems, the government has to tackle it from, you know, through through other means and, and that are often legally weaker. So, um, look, I, I don't know if there's anything new in this that's interesting, but it's um, it's it's good to see some pressure being applied to Facebook for the products and the harms that its products are doing. Um, and even if it's not legally strong, I, I hope that it, it, it at least puts some pressure on the company to to, to act, mm. but we'll, we'll see. So, Lizzie, it seems interesting that um, the legal strategies are becoming, it feels more aggressive, um, particularly around specific, like at, attributing motivation to specific outputs. And a case like this seems to me to be pushing beyond what you've been seeing in a lot of the cases which are more structural about the way that the um the platforms operate. Yeah, I think it is interesting that here we've got um state authorities taking the company to task for a harmful business model. That does um cause you to wonder why such litigation might not be possible or why it doesn't occur in Australia. It is interesting that one of the proposals in the current um, Attorney General's position on privacy reform here in Australia is to introduce a code specific to children because uh, we don't currently have an equivalent in Australia in digital spaces and children are, are particularly vulnerable uh, and models of consent rely on parents doing that that job and I, I'm not sure that's it's always fair to to put that task on them for a variety of different reasons or also appropriate. I think there needs to be greater obligations on companies beyond just bare parental consent. And then, of course, whether bare consent is sufficient in a privacy context um, is a whole other discussion. I think it's quite clear it isn't. So um, for a variety of reasons, obviously, we need privacy reform in Australia to keep pace with even the framing that we're seeing in court cases like this abroad. Um, but I also take the point that someone who's peddling a harmful product, um, there's plenty of precedent for being held responsible for that. Um, part of the challenge has always been with these kinds of mass harms is drawing the causal link between the harm experienced and the product itself. And so that has always in legal history required a pretty um, a challenging piece of litigation to achieve that. So I think it is appropriate that state authorities do that rather than an individual, for example. I mean, to the extent anyone's interested in some of the legal minutiae of this. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's good to see. Uh, I don't think it's a total solution to all these problems, but I think it is appropriate that these kinds of cases come to the fore, even if only is because it causes uh, the company, you know, even if the case is unsuccessful, I think, to reassess their risk paradigm for these kinds of design choices. And uh they're forced to consider their position more in a more fulsome way. So there's all sorts of way in which ways in which litigation like this, even if um, in, in the absence of the ultimate outcome, have a way of shaping how companies this large behave. And it's it's got some utility in that respect, is what I would say. Um, but yeah, of course, I mean, I, I feel like it's been quite clear for a very long time to almost anyone with a parent who's got a kid on these platforms that they do incentivize a certain kind of behavior that is not only harmful but you know, can can be very undermining of 
of building functional social relationships. I mean, I think there's good sides to it too, of course, but um, this is a system that's designed for profit, not for children's well-being. In terms of establishing the causal link, there was a, some wonderful analysis that's been done. There's a natural experiment that happened when Facebook started up, because it started up just in um, Harvard, and then it expanded out into other Ivy League colleges, and then into other universities, and then eventually the whole world. And that took over a number of years. Um, and interestingly, in the US, they do um, they do mental health surveys in universities annually. And you can see when Facebook hit the university because uh, students' anxiety levels and mental health plummets by about you know, 10 percentage points the year that Facebook arrives at your university. Now, that's only a correlation, but it's such a, such a strong correlation with the, the wave of Facebook expanding out. Mm. It really is very suggestive that mm. it's actually not good for us. And I guess going back to the broader theme today, Facebook's it's not its defense, but its plea is regulate us so we know what we can and can't do is kind of like a, an admission that without some guardrails, these guys are going to go whatever they can. It also, um, though, is completely hypocritical because they they call for regulation and then, and then block it. And lobbyists to, to, to block anything that's actually going to harm their business model. So it's it's completely hollow call, in my view. I, I'm going to say something which I which may sound quite radical, but I think we have to consider it. I mean, we, the comparison, I mean, the, the discussion so far could have been talking about vaping, could have been talking about tobacco, could have been talking Uber. about uh, these things that we actually, or alcohol, which we which we prohibit young people having because they're they're formative minds and easily led astray. astray. Um, and I do wonder in five or ten years' time, might we might uh, might hopefully get to a point where social media is put in the same category, which is it's considered to be too harmful to expose to young my, mm. formative minds. And you've got, to, you've got to be over the age of sixteen to be able to access it. Well, this was this part of this case comes from. Um, Instagram specific strategy to set up their kids label this which you know Instagram for 13 year olds is kind of like candy vapes like it's like the entry level drug to get people hooked right anyway speaking of um candy cupboard um Lizzie you're looking at Kiwi Farms and we're not talking fruit and vegetable here no I'm sure many of our listeners will be familiar what with Kiwi Farms uh, but if they're not they're in for a rude surprise so Kiwi Farms is just an absolute sewer. It's where lots of hateful content is hosted on the internet and lots of bad behaviour occurs, I mean, to put it lightly, for want of a better term, including just nasty um, bullying, doxing, kind of really aggressive, you know, stalker behaviour of of certain kinds of advocates and and, and people in society and particularly trans women have experienced the um, nasty end of this. It's like, it's kind of where terrorist content is hosted and stuff like that. It's just, it's revolting. And basically. Kiwi Farms. Pardon? Why is it called Kiwi Farm? Oh man, get me on the fly. I don't know the answer to that, to be honest with you. Maybe I'll try and do some quick Googling while we're having another chat. I don't, I don't know the origin of the name. It does seem, it does seem to not match what they do in any event. Um, what the, there for New Zealanders, isn't it? <laughs> or I think about the birds or the fruit, but yeah, it's neither of those things. Um, So the interesting thing about this is there's been activists who are trying to stop it in its tracks in a variety of formats. And um, in most recent times, this form has taken um, one advocate here in Australia 
found that there was an Australian-based company that was assisting Kiwi farms to stay online. So, you know, people may know that a website to stay online requires all sorts of infrastructure. You know, there's companies like Cloudfare who assist with kind of traffic management and the like, and there's lots of different ways in which that occurs. And this advocate, um, she found a um, company in Australia that that was assisting to keep Kiwi farms online. She sued them in defamation because she'd been just harassed uh, relentlessly on the website and uh, she sued them in defamation and um, and they didn't enter an appearance. So she got a judgment in her favour for, you know, a decent whack of compensation, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, and I can see that probably gives Dan a bit of grief given his past history as a publisher because there's obviously a lot of contention around um, web platforms as to whether they are publishers of content for the purposes of defamation or not. Uh, but, you know, it's an interesting strategy for trying to get these uh, websites taken down in the absence of things like hate uh, regulation of hate speech really not functioning well. Um, and so it's a strategy that lots of advocates have been taking to target these uh, companies that are kind of secondary to the website and then essentially throttle, throttle the website itself. Um, and uh, it hasn't really resolved the question of what constitutes a publisher for the purposes of defamation because the company didn't show up or participate in the litigation. Uh, but I think it has ignited a debate amongst advocates in this space as to what you um, do about these awful websites that cause real harm, specifically for sections of the community, and whether it is appropriate to target private entities to try and get them taken down. Because, of course, the flip side of that potentially is that then these private entities become censors themselves uh, and preemptively shut down other kinds of websites that that they may consider putting that put them at risk and uh, this tends to harm marginalized people um, you know so recently in Australia at least we've had Twitter which was a sex worker friendly website be shut down for concerns about the online safety act um, equivalent acts in the United States uh, preemptively shutting these things down because they don't feel that they're going to be in a position to be able to resist the eventual notices to do that or um, suggestions from regulators or other kinds of harassment as well. So there's a real tension, I think, growing about how you tackle these kinds of websites and what is the appropriate mechanism to do it. I don't, to be honest, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of easy answers either. I'll jump in, Peter, if that's right. I, I hate this, not surprisingly. Um, not, not by the way, to be clear, because I am in any way defending Kiwi Farms or the, the, the sort that it is, it's it's a it's a vile place, and it and it should be taken down. Um, but what I hate about it, I guess you touched on this, Lizzie, is in my mind you have to your your legal responsibilities and your moderation responsibilities really go up the closer you are to the consumer. So you know if you're a if you're a publisher, clearly, and you're publishing content, you should be responsible for that content. If you're a social media platform, um, you're I don't think it's reasonable that you're responsible for every piece of content that users generate on your platform, but you at least should have um, sufficient moderation policies uh, and practices in place to, to moderate that content to, to mitigate harm. When you get to the infrastructure layer, though, like Cloudflare, like internet service providers, like to even to a certain extent Apple and Android, I mean, I would hate for those companies to be forced to effectively surveil content, surveil, surveil their users uh, and monitor the content and then be making decisions potentially proactively around what content they accept or, or don't accept. I would have thought a better approach, perhaps a more long-winded one and maybe idealistic, is you go after the companies themselves with stronger privacy regulation and stronger um, legal protections, and you use that avenue rather than going after the trust companies. Because it just, it, mm -hmm. to me, that just leads to a world with even more surveillance than we've already got 
uh, and I don't want I don't want private companies and based overseas doing any more surveillance than, than is already being carried out by by lots of the big advertising companies. But fire it will. Well, I just you know it's always a battle for metaphors, isn't it? But if the infrastructure, if you think about it like a water system, surely the 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 organisation carrying the water has a responsibility to make sure the water's clean. And there, there, there are points where it's just a pollutant, right? Um, this isn't about um, monitoring specific words or specific conversations. It's enabling a toxic ecosystem. Yeah, I just don't. I, I agree in this isolated instance. I just don't know where it leads. I mean, I think the one, the one place where there, it's, it is black and white is when it comes to child exploitation and CSAM content. Like because you can specifically monitor for that content mm. and take action accordingly, and it's not a judgment call. It's if it's on this list, then it's and then it's well. But, it's but maybe going to the broader discussion about tech regulation, it, it always seems to be that the presumption is everything's okay, and then you find exceptions rather than think about the gate that anything could be dangerous, and then you decide what is acceptable. And it just feels like that's the balance that's out of whack. And I get that neither extreme is that tenable but the current the current default is clearly not working yeah because i think it is i'll let toby go in a sec but i was just going to say i do think it is worth saying though that if you take your position dan you are really leaving people who get harmed by these sites um with the responsibility of having to deal with that and that's a heavy burden to carry because it really isn't working and that's partly what these kinds of cases are a symptom of. There is a relatively thoughtful piece, I think, on this topic in Wired where they discuss the way in which it may not actually just be the site itself, it's also the role of kind of networked amplification of this kind of hateful content, which is what contributes to its potency. And so maybe we need to think a little more uh, in a more nuanced manner rather than just about hosting a website, but also how the content gets amplified, how these people find the communities to pile on and create this kind of hateful harassment harassing behavior and i think that's a fair point um so the hosting is not necessarily the problem it's also the network and how that's amplified and that does get a little bit more to closer to the business model of algorithmic amplification which is closer to what you're describing dan as being a curate curating um role rather than just a hosting role so to speak anyway i think it's complicated but i'll let i'll let toby have a go well, it's it's definitely complicated because it's it's all issues around freedom of speech. Um, the, I think the a- aspect of it that that we've sort of skated around is like who is actually doing the moderation, and in in that respect, um, you know, Elon Musk has done us a favour. He's demonstrated quite clearly that you don't want it to be the whims of one person. Um, mm. You you do want it to be some organisation that uh, you know somebody that that is in some sense more democratically answerable. Um, and I think that's that's where we need to get to, where where it is actually the community's interest that is being moderated. Hmm. I agree. Just last point on this. I'm not sure that making going after one private company instead of another private company is any more democratic. I think it's just shifting the problem from one area to another. But but the fundamental challenge is, is we can't leave it in the hands or the responsibility of an individual or a com- or a private company. It's got, to, it's got to be. There needs to be or, rules and norms. Yeah, it's going to be woven into the fabric of our society as to what we find, yeah. what we are our society to be. And just to round the wheel on Kiwi Farms, my quick little bit of internet search. So it was originally um, CWC um, Key Forum, which was the 
um, initials of the woman, Christine Chandler, who was an autistic trans woman, that the that the forum was actually set up to to basically to dox. And then the Kiwi Farms is actually making fun of somebody's speech impediment um, of saying CWC key forums. And so the whole thing is so horrible yeah. that um, it should even be taken. Name, yeah. Even the name is horrible then. Even um, everything. And sorry, people that like birds and kiwi yes. fruit. It's got nothing to do with you. Um, anyway, moving on. So the other story that caught my eye um, was that thousands of books from some of Australia's most celebrated authors team um, <laughs> are potentially being caught up in what Booker Prize winning novelist Richard Flanagan has called the biggest act of copyright theft in history. Um, this came to light, um, a piece in The Atlantic who actually got a, a big data dump of 180,000 authors whose work had been basically drift netted up by um, a US-based Book 3 data set, which is linked to um, generative AI for companies such as Meta and Bloomberg. And we all did a bit of vanity searching and Lizzie's got um, got caught, Toby's got caught, and so did I, Dan. Sorry, you got to write a book before you can get caught. So <laughs> Every week kind of... I come on this podcast and every week I get shamed for not having written a book. I've, I've well, got to rectify were... this. <laughs> what a bunch of tosses. But anyway, so I don't know whether to be horrified or... But the fact that I think all three of us critique tech and our work has been scooped up by um, a trawling expedition to build AI to, I assume, critique itself seems both bizarre and outrageous. I know that I've been talking to a couple of the peak author bodies to see if there are any causes of action or whether the three of us could get together for, um, you know, a celebrity um, class action or what we can do about this. But it just seems to be both a bizarre moment and almost an inflection point to say that human creativity is really um, under attack way before anyone's even thought of regulating this stuff. I don't know. Were you um, were you horrified or chuffed when you realised future history was now in the canon of um, generative learning, Lizzie? I mean, I'm not thrilled that, you know, something I'd spent some time doing um, is then being used to generate a profit-making bit of tech for a bunch of bros that I don't like. So, yeah, I'm not thrilled about not it. Cool. I mean, I not cool. <laughs> I mean, I do think the act of writing is already kind of underfunded and copyright's not a not a, always an effective mechanism for protecting writers for a variety of reasons and, you know, I've got that criticism that I maintain, but um, you know, it does occur to me that this may not be in compliance with even those obligations um, because it's hard to imagine that the licences for using this kinds of texts would permit that use of the technology. But, you know, it is it does feel a bit like um, kind of a closure of the commons or the appropriate privatisation of the commons. It's the intellectual version of that. You know, they're scooping this up and then using it to train data in ways that they've designed without necessarily being open about that. And I'm, you know, I'm sure Toby will be speaking much more about this, how you could kind of what you could impose upon these companies to make them um, not just uh, treat people whose content is involved in their training their models fairly, but also more transparent and, you know, democratic or accountable. Um, because it's a it's a bigger issue, I think, than just the data that goes into training them. It's like what what happens to it and how is it used and what kind of value-based decisions are being made um, in terms of the outputs that get created and where's the opportunity for feedback. Like there's a lot of 
democracy concerns about this, but the, the you know this foundational element's one of the obvious ones, and there's, they're more subtle, I think, as we go further down the the track towards creating an artificially intelligent scheme of of um, content creation, so to speak. So, what do you reckon they've done with our books, Toby? Having studied <laughs> well, deeply, this is this is how they train these large language models, which is they take large chunks of text, you know, a third of the internet, and all of the online books that they can pirate and scrape and pour them into these language models, which then learn to speak in the style of and learn the contents of, of these books. Um, I wrote an opinion piece um, before, actually, I discovered um, that, you know, my book and all your books have been included in um, training chatbots like ChatGPT. Um, and the title of the book, I th- the title of the opinion piece, I thought was a bit overdramatic at the time, which... But now I'm actually thinking it was about right, which was the greatest heist in all of history, which is all of our cultural knowledge, all of our all, all of our societal knowledge is being hoovered up by these by, by these um, language models. From a technical perspective, if you wanted to ch- train a bot to speak English or any other language, you don't have to train it on our books. You can you can take book works out of copyright, you know, all of Project Gutenberg and train it on the text in those books. Um, it might speak in rather old-fashioned way, which I think would be quite fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, thinks so, that chatbots might speak in quite a polite, polished, old-fashioned way, but but um, um, but is it just the language, or do you think that? But the, but, the, I don't the, know. The, the, the language. That was the point. The the, the fact that ChatGPT can speak knowledgeably be about artificial intelligence and the harms of artificial intelligence is because it's got all of our books, which talk at length about all of those issues. I mean, and why and is the, that different to Google being able to search our work? Well, because it's, it's more than it's more than just keyword retrieval. It's much more than that. It, I mean, the problem, and this is where it, you know the legal challenge is, is that it's writing new sentences. But it's writing sentences. The right reason it can write in the style of Lizzie is because it's ingested her books and is, and and therefore can 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 produce you know with without the ten thousand hours of effort that Lizzie put into writing in her style can now produce um, books in her style. Peter, you did touch on something which I think is relevant here, and that's, um, you know, what is the intent of these big companies? Because it's not it's not just to mm. learn English clearly. Um, no. You know, I was, I, I haven't written a book, but I, I did used to run The Guardian, and you know, I, uh, recall, I, I complained very loudly about the fact that OpenAI had trained, you know, their large language models on our content and had done so without our permission, we then made the decision to restrict OpenAI from accessing our content if they weren't going to pay us for it. We couldn't make that decision with Google and Microsoft, though, because if you make that decision, then you stop them being able to crawl your content for the purposes of appearing in search. Mm-hmm. And so this becomes a competition issue. Again, it becomes the big tech platforms abusing their power uh, mm-hmm. against uh, those who don't have the power. And you know, they're, they're all of the commercial benefit of writing a book that, you know, in the style of any of you three goes to them and doesn't go to the original content creators. And I, and I know this is probably a copyright issue. I mean, I know, Lizzie, that you've got some concerns with copyright and its misuse. And I, I think I'm I'm becoming convinced by by your argument over time. But I think this is a clear case where it's necessary. Otherwise, you're basically going to have the most powerful people getting, getting most powerful companies in the world accruing all the benefit. It, it, I think it's ultimately a, a cultural issue. If you think about copyright emerged when we invented the printing press as a response to the printing press in the sense that we could now copy people's work, intellectual property quite quickly, quite easily, quite cheaply. And we had to build a system in which people could be rewarded for that to encourage them to continue to do that. 
And I think we've had another inflection point where a new technology has come along and has changed. It's not copyright doesn't exactly apply because they're producing new sentences that aren't actually perhaps um, in the training text. But similarly, I think we have to think, well, well how are we going to protect mm. the ability of authors to put the time and effort, the 10,000 hours to write those that intellectual content? Because these language models only exist because they're they're trained on human expertise. It is. And, and so is there a lawyer in the house? What can we do, Lizzie? Like, yeah. what's, well, I mean, there, you know... there is there is sort of some kind of precedent for it, even though it's it's somewhat unprecedented. In that, you know, you do have things like the public lending rights. So you get paid a sum that represents all the times your book was taken out from the library, for example. So we we don't value a library um, loan as zero, notwithstanding it is free um to writers so there's ways in which you can regulate this like I, I you know despite my reservations about copyright i don't think that means that open ai should be able to get all this for yeah. zero fee you know um because they're clearly they think it's valuable um i mean i think yeah so there's models that we could apply but they these and i think they know that that's why they're operating quite quickly and um and trying to then be part of the conversation of regulation because they appreciate that this will be determinative of their business mm. model the other component I would just add Library, to me. You do, you do get okay. the, the sale of the book in the first place. And, okay, it's being used by more people. So, you know, it's not completely in zero. In my case, a singular sale, but anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> Thanks, yeah, of Mark. course, when you when you sell a book, that's right, you get a sum, but you don't necessarily assume that it's going to be used for this purpose because when you sell a book, you sell a, a set of rights to that to that text, which don't include... But isn't that the other point? Like, this wouldn't have been any book contract because no one would have comprehended. Like, it's not like in the terms it says... Um, a machine can't crawl over this and repurpose it for its own, you know. That doesn't mean, though, was... that it's it's not in breach of that contract. I, I would say you don't have to prohibit something in order to for it to be in breach because there's, there's probably terms like good faith, you know, this very mm. dull kind of legal But isn't argument. it the whole Uber principle that you come in with something that's new, you don't respect any law or regulation, and then once people realise what you're doing, then you pair back the regulation to minimise it? Yeah. Well, that is, I, yeah. You go, Toby. The similar problem that Hollywood actors now are facing, extras yeah. who are, you know, who've been digitally scanned and now they're going to be, you know, their their acting is going to be copied at almost no cost mm. in generative AI. Not just extras. There was also the piece this week about um, Scarlett Johansson, whose yes. um, image had been used um, in an ad that she had nothing to do with. So, yeah, you know, it's like they're faking it, Toby, which is but, almost but, time but, for... Um, the technology, yeah, I mean, I think the important thing is to say, like, the technology is changing what you can do and raising really serious questions about what, how do we protect our cultural heritage? How do we encourage, continue to encourage uh, our artists, our authors, our actors, or whoever it is, to continue to produce stuff which adds to our society? So I do think, watch this space. I think there is a legal piece whether there's existing laws, there's a regulation piece, but there's also, I think, a social license piece. And the one thing I do think amongst authors, actors, media, there are some culturally significant actors who are now being done over the same way as warehouse workers and retail workers have been being done over in the last decade. So um, it will be interesting to see whether um, that cultural power can in any way counteract what's going on at the moment. So, yeah.
Anyway, let's move on to the second half of our discussion, which is really focusing on Toby's book, Faking It, um, Artificial Intelligence in a Human World. Toby, you put a lot of books out to be scraped up by machine learning, but this is one of your better ones. Um, And I think what's interesting is you're really trying to sort of take, demystify AI while explaining it, but then also building a broader theme that there is so much bullshit around around this new technology. So as someone that's worked in the field for three decades, give us give us your your journey of thinking about AI. Yeah. I mean, so uh, in some sense, the motivation was realizing that there was increasingly fake AI and AI fakes that were going to be deceiving us in various ways. And people needed to be aware of that. Um, and and someone actually asked me about my previous book. Did I have did I have much about deep fakes? And I realized I had a few pages about deep fakes, but they were actually becoming increasingly important. And then people people falling into the trap that things like ChatGPT were much smarter than they are, because ChatGPT can be incredibly stupid in many respects. My the favorite example I have for ChatGPT at the moment is you ask it how many bees in the word banana, and it will say there are two bees in the word banana. And actually, if you if you understand why it says two, it actually tells you a lot about how how these large language models work, which is that there are lots of places on the internet where people have asked questions about how many A's and how many N's in banana, because people get that wrong. And the answer is always two or three. And whether it's two or three, you have to work out whether it's an A or an N. And so uh, if you ask it a question about any letter in the word banana, the answer that ChatGPT always gives you is two or three, because that on the internet, on the training data was always the answer. If it's B, uh, of course, it's the wrong answer. Or if you ask for how many S's in the word bananas, it says there are three S's in the word bananas. Uh, because it's not saying what's true. It's completely, it's faking its understanding of, of, of what it's saying and fooling us by its fluency that it's much smarter than it is. Actually, what I take from the success of those tools is that we have really overestimated human intelligence. That a huge amount of human communication requires much less intelligence than we thought it did. We actually don't engage our brains that much, <laughs> as much as we th- think we do when we're saying stuff. Um, and so, yeah, a business letter. I've, ri- I've written my last business letter. ChatGPT writes all of my business letters because they're very formulaic. And now we've taught those formulas to machines. And it actually doesn't re- require actually minimal intelligence to be able to write a business letter. Oh, you can smell it, though, can't you? Smell what? <laughs> smell the fakeness of it. <laughs> well, you know, it's a... You're alluding, I suspect, to that famous quote from from Gary Kasparov when he was playing Deep Blue and being beaten for the first time by Deep Blue. And he said famously at the end of the match that he could smell a new form of intelligence across the table, which which I think, you know, an interesting choice, a wonderful, interesting cho- choice of, of, of verb there. But but equally, it, it should remind us that the intelligence, the limited intelligence, what sort of intelligence, whatever sort of intelligence that we do manage to build in machines is going to be quite artificial, quite different to human intelligence. And I, and you know, in the, in the book, I, I do go into how I think the, the, the name artificial intelligence, I used to think was a terrible name. You know, it was an invitation for jokes about natural stability and um, and many other things and the other acronyms for artificial intelligence, AI, artificial insemination. But, but increasingly, I think is actually quite a good name because it's, it remind, should be there to remind you it's not going to be like human intelligence. It's actually going to be very artificial, very different. And we should be mindful think, and careful of that. Think, do you think we've underestimated human in intelligence or that it's just more sophisticated or nuanced than we thought? Because part of what I imagine is that it's kind of culturally specific in ways that sometimes we're blind to um, 
rather than universal. I mean, is it is it fair to say we've underestimated it or it's just more complicated? You know, it's socially determined, it's um, culturally determined, it's obviously linguistically so as well. Um, is, you know, I mean, I, it does beg the question, what is intelligence, I suppose? I don't know if you've got an answer for that. Well, <laughs> I, think, I, I think Silicon Valley, the tech bros in Silicon Valley, don't fully value and appreciate our societal intelligence, our cultural intelligence, and the the fact that that individually we're not as actually smart as we are collectively, and that you know we we might be able to build machines that do smart stuff, but but they they're obsessed with the idea that as soon as we have machines that are smarter than us that they're going to take over. Well, it's like no, we already have people of different intelligence in our society and we have managed to build society in a way that's roughly uh, ensures that the less smart people aren't taken advantage of by the more smart people. That would be a terrible society to be in. Um, there has so been an argument, though, that's been run by, particularly out of Silicon Valley, which is, which I disagree with, I think, in accordance with your point, Lizzie, that, that which is what these LLMs have revealed is that human intelligence isn't as sophisticated as we thought it was. We're, we're, we are ourselves predictive engines um, just slightly more sophisticated predictive engines than what the current LLMs are. I think it misses the point. It kind of demonstrates exactly the point that you just made, Toby, which is it, it doesn't value the nuance and cultural significance of all the other inputs that are going into determining human intelligence. But um, that that's the faking it part in my mind. Yes. And, 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 I mean, we haven't mentioned these, these words, but we should. You know, our emotional intelligence is incredibly important. Actually, you know, you you hear one of the tech bros give a talk and they say you know we've got to where we are today because of our intelligence you think no we haven't we've got to, to where we are today because of our society because mm -hmm. we actually we got, came together and built stuff together with each other cooperated cooperated yeah. that was actually much more important than our intelligence the fact that we agreed to to uh, align our, our goals with each other that collectively we were able to um you know be able to fight back the tiger soups, tiger soup, tiger toothed sabers and all the other people who were going to eat us because we came together in tribes and towns and villages and cities and uh, nations and, and did all the amazing stuff that we collectively do. You just watch so, Toby, these. I... Oh, you go. You go, Lizzie. <laughs> I just I'll feel like topic, so you, you go. I, I feel like it just must be exhausting watching these tech bros say silly things and having to sigh and try and make some sense of it um, outside of that. That's all. I was just really empathising because it must be an extremely tedious job, but I'm glad you're doing it, Toby. Sorry, Dan, you go. <laughs> no, no, Lizzie, you're right. I think it is pretty exhausting putting up with this. I was going to move I was going to move aside just to get your take, Toby, if you don't mind, on on Biden's executive order that, that came out uh, earlier this week or late last week, I think it was, and attempting to put some guardrails around the development of AI. Uh, I saw that you wrote a piece in the conversation on this. Just, just wondering if, um, well, I guess before we get to the executive order, like, what do you think are the potential risks from where this AI could go, and and do you think they're overblown? Well, I think the interesting thing. So the 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 declaration that came out of Bletchley Park, uh, the most interesting part of it, I, I noticed, was that. They've downgraded the risk. It's no longer, they don't at any place talk about existential risk. They now talk about significant, possibly catastrophic risk, which I think is a, a much more appropriate 
perspective to say that yeah there are significant harms that could come out of this but it's not going to it's not something you know like the climate emergency that potentially is going to cause the extinction of humanity uh, whereas climate emergency is something that could potentially cause the extinction of humanity or, or nuclear you know nuclear war that still we still under the threat of that and you only have to worry about what's happening in the middle east and ukraine to think you know that we're only still hair triggers away from launching uh, something like that but um and ai shouldn't be put in that category but there are real harms that we could face and you know biden's executive order does um talk about some of those in terms of the way that you know truth is going to be undermined if we're going to everything is deep faked anything you see online you will have to soon entertain the possibility that it's fake that it's synthetic that the audio that video um which is imperceptible from the real thing is something that has been made to amuse you or confront you or provoke you um and that that we certainly don't have the technology the digital watermarking that's embedded into the mm. literally embedded, literally gonna have to be embedded in the hardware from the moment you take a photograph or capture some audio a digital watermark is gonna have to be put on the stuff through all of the devices that display stuff that the, to to ensure the integrity of what we're looking at that's not that's still five ten years away so in the short term we're going to be in a world of a world of harm where anything you see is something you have to entertain the idea what's what sort of world is that where um where any politician you see you you have to think well is that made up or is that is that the politician really saying what they're saying so there's a few things going on there i reckon first is that it's like the same tech bros who have driven this really fast are now saying slow us down like we need to regulate which on one theory is that they see their technology becoming more powerful the other is just to protect what they've de they've developed so other people can't have the same benefit then you've got government accepting largely vendor driven product who are now saying we need to have rules around it the people missing out seem to be the citizens in these discussions and all these declarations that are being handed down seem to me to be very top-down documents as well and very much like a technocrat would write it or a bot i don't know what's your take on the broader project of regulation that's going on globally at the moment toby is it is it a meaningful um intervention into the way the technology is rolling out or is it just part of the game to actually elevate the importance of this technology well, I thought it was appropriate. There was quite a lot of concern and outrage that the UK's AI safety summit wasn't bringing together civil society, wasn't bringing together mm. many of the people who, who were going to be potentially harmed by these technologies, but was putting some of the, you know, the large tech players and and government representatives in a room together without, um, you know, being a comprehensive, inclusive debate and it wasn't surprising i wasn't at all surprised that there was this fringe ai safety summit that that grew up around it to try and have that appropriate debate mm. uh, i mean the, the i mean the other thing that we we haven't really touched upon is is biden's executive order which which really was an interesting you know put put the cat amongst the pigeons probably really annoyed prime minister rishi sunak for doing something as opposed to having a simple talk fest um of course, executive orders are not law. They can be rescinded by the next president. Um, they tend to impact just how government operates, not so much how business operates. Um, so one has to moderate one's excitement in 
the US doing something in terms of regulatories, uh, re regulating the tech space. But nevertheless, um, it really takes, you know, the US from being at zero to being uh, a leading participant in this conversation about you know, well, what what we should be doing to regulate it. We should be thinking carefully about many of these issues. And But just on that point, the, the one of the things that Biden called for in his executive order was for effectively digital watermarking on yes. by generated content. And I completely share your concern, by the way. I think the biggest threat certainly in the media in the short term is flooding the zone with more shit, uh, excuse me, uh, the language, but just more terrible content being produced by um, these large language models and flooded across the internet and social media. And so, yeah, the idea of creating a watermark so that you can always just determine whether or not content is produced by a bot and whether it's produced by a human would go some way to address that. But I just don't know if that's possible. I mean, it, it seems like that's like you might call for that, but how is that ever going to be enforced? How could the companies themselves even do that when you've got Meta who's open source their source code? I mean, it just seems like an, an impossible thing to 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 actually carry out. I'm pretty confident in five years' time or ten years' time, it's going to be embedded into the infrastructure, just as just as we you know we do trust certificates to you know verify the authenticity of the of the urls that we're going to it's going to be part of the assumed infrastructure it's actually built into the hardware of the devices capturing data make, making the photographs making the making the video making the audio um and it's embedded into all the devices displaying data uh, and in fact it's the perfect application for the blockchain um you want mm -hmm. a distributed immutable ledger of provenance and editing of, of some data that is the blockchain so you know we've actually finally found uh, a good thing to do with hopefully a, you know an energy efficient version of the of the blockchain um there's a little bit of me hopes that in the meantime before we get to that point because that's going to take five or ten years the social media just gets so full of this uh, um, fake content that everyone finally realizes that social media is just for entertainment and nothing should be trusted mm. I take that on board, Toby, but so the watermarking stuff is something that we can, I guess, potentially look forward to it being integrated into a model. So that's good for imagery and video and, and things like that. But obviously the fake kind of intelligence in text is a little bit more difficult to perhaps um, to perhaps confirm. So I wanted to ask you, you know, looking at Biden's declaration, if we wanted to improve these these things would we what would we be asking of these businesses would we be asking for transparency on training um data on on what models they use or what would be your kind of roadmap mm. in that respect that's a really good question <laughs> it's it, it's tough i mean uh, i have no no expectation that things like hardware limits are going to bias any um safety the idea that we you know there's a certain training limit because if you if you look at what's happened Already in large language models, there's been a hundredfold reduction in the compute needed to get the same performance. Mm. Um, and ultimately, it's going to, you know, the ultimate goal, of course, is obvious. You want it to be able to run on your laptop, you train on your laptop and run on your phone. So the idea that we, you know, we can monitor who we sell GPUs to or, or you know, large quantities of GPU. But should there be some discoverability? Like, so, like, Processed food has a whole list of ingredients and flavor enhancing 457, my personal favorite, and 459, and everything that goes into it is labeled. Like, can. Yeah, transparency. Uh, <laughs> transparency would definitely help. We go back to the beginning but of our. What are the inputs? Not just that it's 
machine learning, but what has been input? Like exactly. I mean, the we we, we which we, is almost algorithmic it. transparency, isn't it? It's that idea that if you're going to regulate it at some point, you're going to have to be transparent about what's gone in, and that's when you get into all the kind of IP and commercial incompetence. But they can't claim on IP on something they've stolen off us, can they? No, they can't at all. And that's you know, we go back to that. You know, the, it was only six months or a year after the the data set was made, including all of our books that were legally scraped from the internet, that we discovered it. And that, you know, there have been uh, half a dozen large language models that have been produced on it, but we never knew. I mean, it took- So could they be retrospectively illegal or they ne- like they've well, stolen? Interestingly enough, I mean, there's a number of cases where where they've actually demanded the weights of the model be destroyed because there's no way to unlearn the data on which they've been trained. And so- I wouldn't be surprised if we get to a point where some of these models that were trained on our books and other people's work get the the executive the judicial order is to is to, to is to destroy the model itself. I can There's understand the value case. of that. Yeah, because you know there is a question of garbage in, garbage out. Dare I say it concerning my book? But you know the idea being that there are you know things like a gender data gap in certain data sets uh, that is well documented. So if, even in outside of language models, you know, learning on big data where there's a gender data gap is a problem. It, it, it won't um, necessarily elucidate that gap. It will just confirm it. Uh, and so I think there's really utility there. I mean, the other kind of model, I suppose, Toby, that I want to ask you about is norm building, because you've talked a lot about autonomous weapons and the like, and having a view towards building up norms around these are red lines that you do not cross. And I think it's imperative to mention at this point that we're currently going through um, a, a war on civilians in Gaza where, you know, one of the most sophisticated nations in the world in terms of artificially intelligent weapons um, systems is Israel and it exports a huge amount of um, its technology used in warfare um, around the world. And that it seems difficult to argue that we could develop norms in a context in which we're literally seeing, you know, a genocide unfold in Gaza using these kinds of weapons. But do you how how do you feel about norm development as the way in which this might be um, a form of regulation um, for these kinds of technological systems? Well, ultimately, for things like weapons, it is largely the norms that we set. So why is it that, that chemical weapons don't get used, despite the fact that it's actually not, not scientifically very sophisticated to build chemical weapons and the knowledge is, is, is widely available? It's because we've set that norm that when they do get, and then they do unfortunately get used occasionally in places, um, the world condemns it. There's there's headlines on the New York Times. There there are resolutions on the floor of the UN, um, and arms companies, at least openly, know that they are going to be put on blacklists and and be boycotted if they do indulge in building chemical weapons. And so they don't. And so it's the it's become the norm that chemical weapons are a step too far in fighting war. And I think we've got to have to we have to try and get to the same norm for autonomous weapons. On a positive side, the UN just yesterday voted uh, for the very first time, the General Assembly voted um, to do something about regulating autonomous weapons. Um, only five, five odd nations voted against it, Russia, of course, being one of them. Yeah, I mean, the fragility of that system is now on full display, I think, in, in the Middle East because, you know, you, 
you are having those norms violated. But I, you know, I am somebody who well, understands. It's, it's, yeah. it's difficult. So Ukraine has also developed its own autonomous drones, which they have, you know, they're, they're fighting a terrible war. Um, they're fighting for their own survival. So it's it's hard to criticize them for doing that. Yet, you know, is that is that going to become the norm that, that we shouldn't allow um, machines to decide who lives and who dies? Because that's happening today in Ukraine. All right. So give us the um the positive futures out of all this. I was just reading the final um words of your book, Toby, which is actually quoting um a bot about how bad they're gonna be for the world. But it, anyway. <laughs> Uh, I, I, yeah, at the end of the day, I'm an optimist. I've, you've got to get, you've got to be an optimist to get up in life. Um, I, I do think, you know, unfortunately, we have faced very turbulent times. Um, the next decade or two are going to be quite painful ones for many people in our in our world. Um, there are a whole tsunami of problems that are coming down the pipe, um, and technology could, if we're not careful, amplify some of those problems. But equally, if we are going to address the challenges that the climate emergency, global insecurity that we see, we um, increasing inequality that we see within our society. I think you know the only hope is by embracing the benefits that technology can bring to to actually. That's what that's how we've managed to improve the quality of, of our lives over the last hundred years, and double life expectancy since the industrial revolution, even in developed countries. And that's what the hope is. I think in the longer term, but it but it's by being very careful and mindful about how the technology gets deployed. And who makes those decisions as well. You know, it's really interesting. Some of the um, best thinking around this is really about building models of countervailing power. So it's not just driven by the technologists. Um, it is. And, capitalists. And, and, and again, let's not forget, you know, the promise of the Arab Spring. Um, these are technologies which can help amplify those voices if we're careful. They've equally discovered they can also amplify much more corrosive voices as well. It's just a matter of trying to make sure that the right voices are getting heard. Indeed. Final thoughts, Dan? Uh, I'm not sure if I've got anything more optimistic to add. I, I think the next, I'm just, I'm just going to agree with, with Toby, I think that the next few years are going to be uh, incredibly turbulent. And I think what, what I'm particularly worried about is what's coming with the US presidential election is We've already seen massive misinformation being run out on across social media, um, and and have seen the effect of this without artificial intelligence and its ability. You know, if you take the recent pandemic, its ability to persuade a huge number of people that vaccinations didn't work, we're going to see that times a mm. hundred in the upcoming U.S. presidential election. I, I think that's got going to have pretty dire consequences for. Society. I'm not sure what the answer is. Um, Lizzie, you have to be the optimist. How how are we going to finish? Uh, how are we going to solve uh, this problem? It's always <laughs> upbeat. Yeah. Uh, I, am I always upbeat? I, I mean, I would say it's not just social media. It's actually mainstream media as well that's engaging in the disinformation for what it's worth. I would just throw that some, into Some the mainstream media. Some, some mainstream sure. media, yes. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't have any... Uh, you've got to find ways of building community, notwithstanding this text and um, collective senses of responsibility, of social duty, of, of truth and um, and fight for them. I think that's what the challenge that's thrown down to us. And I would say if anybody, I mean, given we're about to wrap up, I would say if anybody's interested in the topic that I raised about what's called the Palestine Laboratory, my friend Antti Lowenstein's written a great book about the way in which tech is being uh, used by Israel to export it in their weapons and 
it is it is something that is happening in plain sight that we can argue against, but we have to build a sense of commonality and community that can enforce the norms that we've created for ourselves, not allow them to just be lip service. And um, that, to some degree, has always been the job of thinking people, of critical thinkers, of people interested in making the world a better place. So uh, notwithstanding the scales changed, I think our challenge remains the same uh, and it's working out how to to do so uh, in in quicker and in more innovative ways and, and harnessing the power of the tech that's available for us to do that, to shift it in the direction of democracy rather than autocracy and oppression. Anthony and I had a fantastic conversation um, two weekends ago in the Ubud um, Book Festival in Bali, talking about these sorts of topics. I hope I hope it's going to be put out on YouTube or a podcast. Once all the books are AI generated, the book festivals are going to be interesting affairs too, aren't they? Keep <laughs> <laughs> fakes. <laughs> hey, thanks everyone. Great discussion. Um, good luck um, with your book, um, Toby, and we'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Peter. You've been listening to Burning Platforms, recorded on November 3 and produced on Gadigal Land by Jennifer Macy. Talk again soon.